Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and I am thrilled to have Michael Ian Black on this podcast again for the second time. He just published a book called A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. It's such a beautiful reckoning with what masculinity is and, you know, how we're, how we're raising ourselves, how we were raised. And so I asked him to have a conversation about it. And I'm really excited to share it with you because we can't do much to end the parts of our culture that are harmful and begin to heal and be open to expanding and repairing inequities without reflecting closely so we can understand ourselves and how we're raising our kids. And at the end of this conversation, don't forget to stick around for listener Q&A. If you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and even write a little review. And for any questions or to reach me, you can DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast on Instagram. And you can check the show notes for more on Michael Ian Black. There are so many beautiful ways of looking at something that I think anybody of a certain age is really wrestling with right now, women and men, about this world and masculinity and all of the the things that come out of that paradigm being what it is. And I don't know. I think it's really inspiring to force us all to be a little bit reflective, but not judgmental. And that's a very tall order to step back and be reflective and not judgmental. And also to acknowledge that for women, I don't know what the cutoff is, but there is an age cutoff where this is more confusing and complex than it is for a different generation. And actually I'm imagining the conversations you had with your wife were and are quite different about her definitions of masculinity than they are with your daughter. Uh, the only reason I'm hesitating answering this question is because I actually don't know that I've ever had a conversation with my daughter about this subject. Did you talk Most, to her about the book? Oh, yeah. I mean, y- yes, in the sense that she knows <laughs> I wrote a book <laughs> at any time. I love teenagers. 
but you know, she's 17 and so closed off from any sort of meaningful conversation about really anything <laughs> with us that I'd be actually really curious to have that conversation with her if she'd be willing to have it. But I don't know that she is ready, willing and or able to have a conversation like that with me. I do think that there is some meaningful difference between my generation and the way they look, we looked at masculinity in her generation. I suspect that's the case. And I think you suspect that too. I think she probably is much more receptive to different models of masculinity than maybe girls were when they were my generation's girls were uh, when we were teenagers. And that can only be a good thing, I think. Yeah, I'd be, I'd really, I'd like to have that conversation with her. Maybe I'll try. I'm curious. Not going to go well. Well, maybe if you ask her what her friends think masculinity Mm -hmm. is. That's a good, that's a good tactic. (laughs) Just because sometimes that, that, I don't know. But I guess I kind of, and I, the phrase toxic masculinity drives me crazy. And yet there's a lot of reason to, that that phrase came to be, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious. Cause I, I like to know what you think was toxic or unhealthy before you started to be reflective about masculinity. And I think this has been something that you've been doing longer than maybe it's been part of the zeitgeist or whatever. I don't know how you're going to say this in a short way, but how has your definition of masculinity evolved and how has it stayed in a place where you think, I know I, do you have any kind of shoulds, like I should feel this way, but I don't thoughts about masculinity? The dyed in the wool, bleeding heart communist side of me felt like going into this, that um, I was probably going to feel like masculinity in general is toxic and that part of me needed to be leading, you know, a revolution against masculinity, mm-hmm. but I don't think that way at all. I don't think masculinity is toxic. I don't think um, masculinity needs to be reinvented, uh, which is a kind of common phrase in the culture now. I think there's a lot to be celebrated about masculinity, masculine behavior, traditional masculine behavior and masculinity and boys and men. And that is maybe surprising to me as somebody who felt a little bit alienated from the way the culture portrays men or the way the men think of themselves for most of my life. Like I just, I didn't feel like I fit in a lot of times with men, even though I've always considered myself like just a guy, a man, a boy, and being male has always been such a kind of fundamental part of my identity that I never even questioned it. But I felt like I wasn't like whatever my vision of masculinity wasn't being reflected back at me in my day-to-day life. So I have been thinking about this stuff for a long time, if only, be, if only because I, I felt sort of forced to, if only because I felt so kind of alienated from my own people, you know, men for so long. Um, and the 
the conclusion that I came to isn't that we need to, as I said, reinvent masculinity. It's just simply that we need to expand what we think of when we think about men to be more inclusive of male behavior or, 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 or to put it another way, to just understand, recognize, and accept that male behavior is human behavior and that male emotions are human emotions and that we are full spectrum human beings. We're not just strong and silent and stoic and stiff upper lip and impervious to pain. We're also vulnerable and empathetic and nurturing and um, confused and adrift sometimes. The same way women aren't just vulnerable, empathetic, nurturing, and kind. They're also strong and independent and adrift and confused. Like we're all, all of those things. We've done a good job of expanding, I think, over the last 50, 60 years, what it means to be a woman. And we haven't done the same for men. So I got Gemis products. I got to choose the shampoo and conditioner that was exactly right for me because you take a little quiz. It's so fast. And then they recommend what you should get. And because they wanted to make sure that I could authentically promote this shampoo and conditioner, I actually took their two-minute quiz. Their algorithm matched me with the best shampoo and conditioner. And it is awesome. My hair, which tends to get dry, feels so much softer and I'm much more of a wash and go gal. So the conditioner keeps me kind of looking like I'm put together. The CEO and founder is a mom of two and a dog mom and has a Harvard graduate degree. It's a subscription based, so you can save 20% on every order with Smart Subscribe and get free shipping. And based on your hair length and washing frequency, they actually personalize the subscription so that you don't actually end up with more shampoo than you needed. And you can skip shipments. Plus there are free returns, quality ingredients that are sulfate-free, paraben-free, dye-free, never tested on animals and manufactured in the US. So if you're ready to have the best hair ever, try Gemist. Right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner. Just visit Gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter Humans20 at checkout for 20% off and free two-day shipping. That is Gemist.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter the code Humans20 at checkout to get the best hair. You know those things you are too embarrassed to talk about when it comes to dating? Like when to say I love you, how to define the relationship. Well, We Met at Acme touches upon all of those subjects and more, and we get right into it with our guests and talk about their dating lives and also what not to do when it comes to dating because we're all kind of confused together. So you can tune in every Sunday to We Met at Acme and maybe you can learn a thing or two while I learn a thing or two. We've seen women make such incredible leaps and bounds in their opportunities and achievements as a result of this expansion. In some ways, in a lot of ways, women are outperforming men just in terms of being humans, you know, just and in academically, terms of academically, professionally, politically. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not to say that it's not to say that women have eliminated the gap, you know, 
the inequities, but they've certainly closed the gap enormously over the last 50 or 60 years. And that has forced a re-examination of the way we view women and the way we view the culture. And it has ended up alienating a lot of guys because they end up feeling defensive. They end up feeling like women are encroaching on their territory. It was never their territory to begin with, but we sort of felt possessive of it. Men need to do the same work. Men need to do the same work that women have been doing. And it's hard. It's hard work. It's uncomfortable work. And so that's, you know, that's what this book is arguing. Um, Do you feel like the things that are traditional, the things that made you feel kind of rejected by your own people, your own man people when you were younger, are those traits about yourself that you have come to appreciate more now than you did then? Like what, what are those? What are those, what, what were the parts of you that didn't look like traditional masculine versus some things that were more comfortable for you? And are they more comfortable now? Well, I grew up in New Jersey in the mid 1980s. So it's like, that was like the epicenter of like hair metal nation, you know? Um, it was very macho and very sports oriented and very competitive. And, you know, I was like, I wanted to be a theater kid. I wasn't even a theater kid. I wanted to be a theater kid. You know, I didn't even have like those people that I really felt like close to. There wasn't a lot of support for boys who were you know, wanted, you know, wanted to be creative and wanted to be kind of artsy fartsy and wanted to live in a slightly different model than the majority of the boys were living in. The way that you were pegged, if you wanted to live outside of that was just like, you're a faggot. Like that's who you are, you know? (laughs) Like, And I grew up in a gay household. My mom's gay or was gay. I mean, she's dead. She's she, right. I knew he meant, uh, but I'm sorry. I'm still gay. She right. didn't burn. <laughs> so I was plugged into things that like other kids weren't plugged into. Like I was plugged into like gay rights as an issue um, in the beginning of the AIDS crisis. You know, I was, I was plugged into at least a very, I was plugged into feminism. I was plugged into expression, creative expression in a way that most of the boys around, all the boys around me just weren't into. And it just felt alienating because there just wasn't space for boys like that to really feel free. So did you compensate for that or hide? You know, I compensated for it by developing a kind of sarcastic jaded, you know, persona that that carried with me into my professional life. I just, I I didn't know how to feel comfortable in my own skin. And I buried a lot of like what it meant of what it felt like to be me. Like I buried a lot of that. And it's taken me all this time to kind of start unburying, digging up, digging up, I guess is what you do when you're unburying something. Sure, sure. (laughs) Digging up kind of the parts of myself that, yeah, I, I put into the ground a long time ago. 
did you have any of the reverse of that? Like parts of you that had components of masculinity that you felt like weren't acceptable because you wanted to also be a feminist and you were part of a community that was more progressive? Yeah, because I, at the same time, like I was, at the same time I wanted to be an artsy fartsy theater kid, I also wanted to be a total pussy hound. Like I was like, <laughs> totally like, I was very hetero from a pretty young age. Like I was just super attracted to girls, but also I questioned that part of myself. You know how kids, like, like kids question when they think they might be gay. I was like questioning my own heterosexuality because right. I, I doubted my, mo- my own motivations. Like I didn't want to be a dick, you know? But at the same, like, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to cross lines. I didn't want to offend. I didn't want to like hurt anybody. And I'm not just saying, that's not me saying like I was perfect by any means. Like I did hurt people. I did cross lines. Like I, I was a dick, you know, but I also was, you know, I was so conscious of like, like, here's a, here's a, a good example that I still get shit on from my wife to this day, which is that when we first started dating, I would refuse to pay for her for anything because part of me felt like a big part of me felt like if I do, if I pay for her, she's going to feel a sense of obligation to me that I don't want her to feel. And meanwhile, she's totally broke. <laughs> she doesn't, <laughs> and she's like, I wouldn't have felt obligated to you. <laughs> I was like, okay, but like, I was so worried about like those kinds of issues and boundaries um, I felt like I was being a good feminist and she just felt like I was being an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, you're probably right. I probably was. No, you know what? I still, I think that's still hard today. Like that you just, you were, it sounds like you were raised conscious about things that are now more, I don't even know if that's true either, but, but that your son, for example, would, it would just be a natural part of not just his upbringing, but his peers. And I still think there's a confusing message there about what's just being an asshole versus like being thoughtful and what's being patronizing versus thoughtful and what, you know, that's still confusing. I still don't know the answer. So Peanut is an app that connects you with like-minded women throughout all stages of motherhood. Peanut provides safe space for mothers, expectant mothers, and those trying to conceive to build friendships, ask questions, and find support. Introducing you to women nearby who are at a similar stage in life, Peanut provides access to a community of women who are there to listen, share information, and offer valuable advice. Whether it's understanding IVF, adoption, pregnancy, first years, or even beyond, Peanut is a place to connect with women like you. And we know that one of the most important things you need when you have kids is having a community or a space of support. So if you've struggled to meet friends or you need advice and you're just looking for someone who's going through that same experience with you, this app can introduce you to other moms and moms-to-be that are nearby. So download the app for free today. You can head to peanut.app.link slash raisinggoodhumans 
or just find it on your app store and get ready to connect with other sister moms going through similar experiences. The gender etiquette, I think, is really confusing. What is appropriate? What is chivalrous um, Mm -hmm. versus descending? Like, you know, the conclusion I guess I've come to is just be kind and be generous and hold the door open, but hold the door open for the guy behind you too, just like after you, you know? If you invite somebody out to dinner, pay the check. Not because it's a man or woman or whatever. It's just yeah, generous. You know, like, hey, and do things, you know, try to look past your own self-interest when you can. Um, it's hard. Uh, because, you know, I definitely wasn't, I was trying to be a good person, but it was hard for me to be a good person. It continues to be really hard for me to be a good person and to think about others. And, you know, when you're a guy, so much of what we do is framed as we provide for others we protect others. Like that's sort of what our role in the culture has always been to provide for and protect. I mean, I guess like cops, you know? Right. It can just um, be taken the wrong way. It can be taken the wrong way. And so much of our lives and our identities is, is centered around our utility to others, which is a good thing, I think. But it, it sets us into a competition with each other not just other guys, but other people where we're always sort of viewing ourselves as like, am I as successful as I can be? Am I like winning the most that I can win? Am I doing enough, being enough that the people in my life won't think I'm useless or a loser or, you know, whatever the fear that men have in their masculinity is. And I have those fears. Here's another example from the other day, which is atrocious. My wife is like, we should go get a Christmas tree. And, you know, I don't like Christmas. I've never liked Christmas. I'm Jewish, (laughs) but I've never liked Christmas. I think it's a pain in the ass. And I just, I just don't like it. But my kids are, my wife's Christian. My kids are nothing but more more christian than not um hard to choose jewish when you have both options yeah kind of <laughs> i say but, jewish so oh, yeah. i feel like that's not as offensive as it sounds well i, I know what you meant no if you could be like part of the bigger culture it's like yeah i'll be part of that <laughs> <laughs> so she's like me and elijah my son found this like cut your own christmas tree last place last year let's go cut our own christmas tree and i'm like okay fine I don't want to go, but I'm like, fine. <laughs> so we go with the kids to this Christmas tree farm and it's a lovely place. And what I didn't understand about cut your own Christmas tree place is that they literally mean you have to cut your own Christmas tree. I thought there was like a guy who walks around and like trails you with like a chainsaw, but no, but they, there's the guys like there's saws in the bin over there. Go pick out a tree and 
cut it yourself. I'm like, what is this? So it's freezing cold. We're like ambling through this Christmas tree farm. I'm holding a saw and we find this tree and my wife's like, okay, so cut it down. I'm like, how the hell am I supposed to cut down a tree? So I'm like going to work on this stupid little tree. And the saw, of course, immediately gets stuck in like the resin. And I'm all, and I'm furious. I'm furious and humiliated <laughs> because I'm sitting there on this cold ass ground trying to cut down a goddamn Christmas tree. And then my wife's like, do you want me to do it? I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? Like, but it was deeply humiliating for me just as a guy, like as a man forced <laughs> to cut down his own Christmas tree that he didn't want in the first place. And then having my wife, <laughs> like, oh, I'll do it, honey. It's That's also a emasculating moment of my adult life. That's also, as a Jewish man, there's oh. that that's uh, you're doubling down on humiliation just a nightmare the jewish man's nightmare it's like the actor's nightmare where you go out and you don't know your lines that's the jewish nightmare the jewish man's nightmare where you go you were forced to cut down your own christmas tree <laughs> that really is just yeah. even just walking in with the surprise that you actually were expected to use a chainsaw is so in a chainsaw it would have been easier i mean i would have cut off my oh, hands. Was this, it was a regular saw i saw like a little <laughs> a chainsaw at least i feel like i if like if they had just gotten it started for me i could i feel like i could have handled that somewhat but just like hacking through <laughs> a living I'm, tree you feel like you're murdering a tree <laughs> But it was like such a like classic, you know, like guy mm -hmm. scenario where like your manhood is being tested in this case against a hapless tree and in front of my family. It's like she could have, she literally just could have taken the saw and <laughs> and that would have been about the same. It would have been about the same. Your family has adapted to a lot of change this year. I mean, all of our families have, and we're all preparing for the holidays. While this holiday season may look a little different, it's still a season to celebrate moments of wonder and discovery. With KiwiCo Hands-On Science and Art Project, you'll give a gift that sparks curiosity and learning all year round. Remember, the most wonderful gifts are the ones that spark wonder. And with KiwiCo's seriously fun and innovative crates, you can share new discoveries with everyone on your holiday list this year. So one fun project in the maker crates, which are for older kids, are the needlepoint pillows. It's really fun to just sit back and forget about everything and just fully focus on these fine motor projects that just get you kind of in a zone. It's like a state of meditation. Deliver the gift of wonder to everyone on your list this holiday with KiwiCo. Kiwi designs hands-on projects and experiences that spark wonder and discovery. With different crates for kids of all ages, there's something for every kid on your list. Start a new holiday tradition with KiwiCo. There's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel anytime. 
KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid at KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code humans at kiwico.com. That's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code humans. So writing this book and being reflective about these roles and masculinity in that moment did not, you you didn't go into a state of like metacognition where you're like, okay, this is an example. You know what? You can no, I cut this down. I fully <laughs> understood my own prisoner's dilemma in that moment. Like there was no, but, but I couldn't be detached about it. And mm-hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't enjoy the moment for what it was because I was freezing and I was sitting on the cold ground being humiliated in front of my children. Like I understood exactly where I was in the context of my own life and, and purported worldview as <laughs> down in a goddamn book that I wrote about masculinity. No, I was fully aware, but was incapable of doing anything about it. I mean, well, that was my whole, that, that was all I was curious about today was how does this translate into day-to-day existence as a man having combination than I I thought was possible. Okay. Even more (laughs) experience as a man because I was aware of it. Exactly. That awareness does not make it easier at all. It is more vulnerable and you can be more self-loathing because you can see your like the weakness on top of, yeah. if, I, if I may. It just gets deeper. I'm wow. just further into the well. So now your kids are both there or just your... My kids are both there, yeah. Your kids are both there. And is there an awareness on their part? Is there a, about the, the dynamics going on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, kids are obviously very smart, understand the family dynamics, the gender dynamics. My uh, understand that dad has just written a book about masculinity. Like they're not idiots. Oh my God. <laughs> and I feel like my wife is, I, I mean, she denies it, but I think she was taking special pleasure in this. Sure. I mean, <laughs> that's incredible. But but in the moment, there was no humor. Nobody was laughing? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Have you guys, is that something you'll process later as a moment that reflects? I already, I, I've already discussed it with my wife in humorous ways. Mm-hmm. It will probably end up being in my next hour of comedy. <laughs> It's pretty incredible. And now is your daughter looking at, I'm so curious, just like your daughter's watching that and your son's watching that. And are they at a level of comfort with masculinity where they get it, but they don't agree with it? Or are they thinking, dad saw the damn tree? I think it's more than the former. (laughs) It's like, just can we please get the fucking tree and go like, can you? Uh, can you not have an existential crisis in front of? <laughs> and if your mom had your mom, whew, 
if your wife, <laughs> if your wife had just taken over with the saw, the saw would that You'd be divorced? But would it have modeled for your kids? Like, is there a fantasy where you said to her, you know what? It seems like this is a better idea for you. And I'm totally comfortable with that. Would that have modeled for your kids something new about masculine comfort? In, the truth is like a lot of times in our household, when these sort of things come up, I do let my wife do it. You know, <laughs> anything like mechanical. She's like, do you just want me to do it? I'm like, yes, because I can't. I cannot. So yes, you do that. So they have seen me modeling that behavior <laughs> before. They've seen me modeling incompetence. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, so, you know, I'm curious, like how this translates from page to stage, because as your kids have been growing up while you've been coming to terms with these roles, will it, will it translate into a more comfortable, like, will your son sit in his skin more comfortably? I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I know he's more comfortable in his skin at age 19 than I was in mine when I was 19. I feel confident that that is the case already. Uh, but, you know, he'll have, he'll just have different challenges as he goes through life. You know, I grew up in such a like specific, weird, with such a specific weirdness around my own gender, uh, which is funny for somebody who is totally white, cis, straight, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's weird that I would have had so much tumult over gender in my, <laughs> but I have, um, he, I, he, he doesn't have that. And I, I don't know, I don't, it'll be interesting to see with my daughter, like what her relationship with men is like, you know, she's tough. She's like a tough girl. Um, she's very independent and very strong willed and, will not make it easy on whatever partner she ends up having in her life. Uh, and in a lot of ways, she models traditionally masculine behavior more than my son, because she's the one who's very stoic. She's the one who is very independent and very much somebody who wants to do things on her own, in her own way. And if you interfere with that, you know, you're going to get your head chewed off. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see like if she, if she gets more comfortable in her own skin because right now she's not. Hmm. I wonder, you know, cause I do wonder that like how, how your idea of, obviously she, she wasn't, she was raised to not worry about her. You know, she wasn't told, like I was told by my grandfather. I remember when he was like, sweetheart, I want you to read this book. And it was about, it was some book about how women are supposed to act mm -hmm. to get a man to <laughs> be with them. And it was, he was, he was just trying to say to me, like, you can't always, you know, basically you have to adhere to the feminine mm -hmm. personality traits and norms that will be appealing to men. Mm -hmm. And my guess is your daughter was not hearing that message. <laughs> no, or be at all uh, appealing to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like she wasn't hearing a message to worry about being appealing to someone period. Right. No, no but I mean, I, but not from us, but, but not directly from us. Meaning like, I'm sure we have sent her 
unconscious messages that enforce the culture in ways that we don't intend to, whether they're about clothes or, you know, appearance in some way or whatever, you know, I'm sure we're doing it because how could we not, you know, you can't live in the culture and not take it on. And, you know, I think every parent does their best to like protect their kids from what they think of as the worst aspects of the culture. And, you know, it's hard when you're, when you're swimming in water, it's hard to stay dry. And, and I'm sure we're guilty of it. And I'm sure in whatever therapy she ends up having years from now, she'll be sure to assign blame to us for, <laughs> and she'll be right, you know, for whatever it is. And, you know, and then there's just a larger culture of her peers and what they're thinking and saying and doing. And, you know, girls are pretty conformist and that's okay. You know, I think she's, I mean, you know, she's great and, and she's dealing with her own stuff in her own way, in her own time. And, uh, and I, I adore that she is as strong as she is and as, strong-willed as she is and as independent as she is, I just hope she, it, I just hope it doesn't cause her to trip over herself too much as she moves into the wider world. Have you had like a conscious, cause I know you talked about this before about talking to your son and making sure that you raise a kid who is able to see you're allowed to ask for help. You're allowed to be vulnerable. You're allowed to have feelings but that it's specific about your son. And I'm just curious, was it easier for you to be conscious about that with your son and develop a relationship with your son that way than it was with your daughter because she's different mm-hmm. or you, those were the, the goals were the same. It's just, it, there was more, it's more natural to do that with daughters. And so with sons, you have to just be more intentional. I hope I've been intentional with both of them and meeting them on their ground, you know, and trying, you know, because I'm every parent, I'm sure has to communicate differently with their different children because they're just Mm -hmm. different. So, you know, I, I've done that enough for both of them in ways that they understand and in language that makes sense to them, verbal or nonverbal language, by the way. And again, like, I'm sure I have fallen short and continue to fall short in ways like what, and one of the reasons I keep saying stuff like that is because like I wrote this book and there was no intention on my part of it being an advice book in the sense that I think I did anything any better than anybody else. I don't, I don't feel like I have a ton of wisdom I'm not holding myself up as, as anything other than a dad, you know, who's trying his best. And so the reason I keep saying things like, I'm sure I've fallen short is because I'm sure I have. And I'm not saying like, I've done anything better or really, or worse really than any other. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm a parent experiencing things in probably very similar ways as other parents. So I've tried to meet my kids on their ground. I've tried to communicate with them. I think I've done a good job, but I'm sure I've fallen short in some ways. I mean, we all have. So there's, that's a pretty realistic appraisal of all of our kids' experiences, I hope. But something that I found incredibly appealing about your, because it isn't like you're saying, I I figured out how to raise boys better. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to impart that wisdom on everybody. And, but I do 
think that the way our culture is talking about masculinity and even using phrases like toxic masculinity is setting most of most anyone up for going into a you know like a threat brain where they can't hear you because there's no acceptance and openness and curiosity. It's all like finger pointing about how it's so shaming. And when you get into the shaming brains, you can't learn because mm. your, your prefrontal cortex is gone. Mm. So what I think is wonderful is the way you reflect and talk about this and talk about masculinity as just needing to have almost growth components to it or just ex- I think you said expand expansion or expanding our view of masculinity allows for space to actually think about these things without getting on the defensive and without thinking, what is this going to take away from, you know, how is this going to take away from me currently? And why do I have to defend my, my behavior? And I think when we get into defending our behavior, we don't actually change our behavior. We're just put in a position to say why we're not horrible. And, right. you know, so I really, I think that was what struck me is just that incredible balance of being able to look at these things with some kind of curiosity so that it's not just about what a piece of shit you are if you think a certain way or if you have a certain behavior instinct or way of being and that's important right now. And it's really hard to do. And it's really hard for a white straight guy to do. So I, I appreciate it so much. And, and I hope that that's, that allows for more honest conversations. Well, I was really conscious of that because first of all, I'm talking to my son in this book and I don't want him to feel defensive or ashamed about being a straight white guy. And as a straight white guy, like, I understand the defensiveness. Like, I understand it too. I understand the feeling that a lot of, I'm sure, other straight white guys have of feeling like, wait, like, I'm just trying to, like, live my life and be a good person. Like, I'm not out there, like, harassing interns or, like, whatever it is. Like, I'm just, like, I'm trying to raise my family. I'm trying to be a good person. And there's all this stuff coming at me telling me, like, what a piece of shit I am. And I don't feel like I am a piece of shit. And I understand that defensiveness. I totally get it. But at the same time, I feel like we have, as guys, an opportunity to look at the culture and be like, well, wait a minute. If all these people are saying something's wrong with us, kind of like, maybe there is. And is there a way to, like, examine it without being defensive, like you said, and looking at as an looking at as an opportunity to be additive and to be like, well, wait a minute, maybe I can take some stuff and sort of glom it onto who I, I am and it makes me more and I can take from over here and it makes me more. That was the approach that I was trying to take because I didn't... I, you know, what am I going to do? Like write a book finger wagging at my son about what a piece of shit he is. I mean, look, my son's a piece of shit, but for different reasons. <laughs> well, I, I think it's very, um, I just, I, I think we need a little more of it. A little guilt helps us with our moral rudder, but the shame that is part of the conversation, which is the majority of the conversation, the shaming does nothing. And, um, 
and you can't be reflective and you can't think about, oh, I don't like how this feels. I feel a little guilty. I don't like how this feels. What what can I do differently? Because you're too busy just wanting to apologize for existing. Right. And I will say that like, I also understand the flip side of it where people who felt like they couldn't finger wag before, nobody was paying attention to them are now feeling like, holy shit, like I have a voice and I'm going to finger wag all day long. And it feels great. It feels great to finally be able to express like my outrage, my, my humiliation, my own shame. Like it feels great to be able to like, to name, to name and shame. I understand that. I would probably have that instinct too. I understand both sides of it. But I think as somebody who is like trying to be receptive to what people are saying, I want to know where I can be better just because it, it ultimately makes you happier. I think like if you're, if you're just from a purely pragmatic point of view, like if you're engaged in behaviors, which you feel like are destructive, like you're going to feel worse. If you feel like if you're engaged in behaviors that you feel like are constructive, you're going to feel better. Like just from a purely selfish point of view, it's worth taking a look at that stuff. You know, the, the other option is to like hold every hold the culture at bay and say, I'm ignoring all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think we've seen a lot of people do. And the way that ends up manifesting itself the way I look at it is the way I see it. And maybe I'm wrong, but it looks like that turns into anger pretty quickly. It turns into resentment and alienation. And I don't want to feel those things either. And, and by the way, I do, I do feel anger. I do feel alienation, but rather than like cuddle up with that and be like, this is who I am now (laughs) trying to like expel it. And it's not always easy. And now for listener questions. The first question is asking about younger children and touching private parts. And I actually started to answer this for Instagram and realized it may be out of context on Instagram would not be the best place to talk about it. But there is is a longer conversation to be had about safety and knowing when to have concerns about certain things and sexuality and body parts and all of those things, which I will have on another episode. But my answer to this question, which is just about what to do if your three-year-old continuously is wanting to touch their private parts is, and, you know, and, and should you be worried is that for the most part, it makes total sense that young children would get to know their bodies, touch different body parts and discover that it feels really good to touch their private parts. And that's something that you want to support. You know, there's nothing wrong, if anything, that's great to be comfortable with your body and figuring out what feels good. It's not about being sexual. It's just a natural behavior that some young children find pleasant for them and some don't. And so you won't see it. For those of you who do just try to recognize that without shaming or without implying that there's something wrong with touching your own private parts, try to 
keep reminding your child that that's something to do in the privacy of their bedroom or in the bath and that anywhere else, it's not the time. So you really want to redirect them and you can also normalize it and let them know, oh, you discovered that it feels nice to touch your private parts and, you know, or maybe that tickles and that's great. That's something you can do in your room because your private parts are for you and you alone. And so when you are touching your private parts, you want to make sure that you are alone. And that's it. Now, there are no red flags there. Um, The red flags would be if in the process of seeing your child doing something involving their private parts, if they're making vocalizations or touching themselves in a way that looks like it's imitating adult behavior, then it could mean that they've been exposed or seen something on television or in real life that is inappropriate. And so that's a totally different thing. Um, But what this question was about is completely typical young child behavior of self-exploration. Here's the next question. My son is two years old and we've only had a handful of playdates with a friend's one-year-old. But I noticed that my son is possessive and sometimes aggressive when it comes to their things. So even if we're at their house, every toy is his and he tends to snatch toys out of the one-year-old's hand, cry and push when he wants something. And even though he's generally a sweet kid, I want to understand what as a mom I should be doing in this situation. Okay. So that is so common and it is completely age appropriate And the role for you is to, because the other child is younger and you want to make sure to protect his body, of course, you do need to intervene if there's any physical aggression and say, I can't let you push your friend or I can't let you hit your friend. But when it comes to snatching toys, it's important rather than emphasizing you have to share that Um, you want to emphasize turn-taking. And so setting up the situation where you say, we're going over to so-and-so's house. I know you like to take his toys when he's playing with them. Let's have a plan where you take turns. So if your friend is playing with something, then you're going to wait. And when it's your turn, you'll play with something. Now, that's really hard to do if your two-year-old just looks at you and doesn't understand what words you're saying, but you're setting up the practice of planning in advance to deal with challenges that you're about to experience when you go to someone's house. So it's more like a habit. Then you'll go into the house, he snatches a toy and you can remind him, remember your friend's playing with that frog Please give the frog back to your friend and you can have a turn after. So you keep on helping. And if you notice that it's continuous, you really just want to get there right before and say, oh, your friend's playing with the frog. You really want that frog. Okay, well, we can go ask, can I have a turn with that frog? And, you know, you can work with the other parent to try to practice turn-taking keep in mind that the one-year-olds may not even care if your child snatches a toy and it may seem aggressive to you, but actually the two kids are getting along and then you don't really have to intervene that much, but you just want to slowly help build the habit of turn-taking and also respect that when your child is playing with something, he doesn't have to give the toy to the one-year-old right away, he too can say, right now I'm playing with this and then I'm going to give you a turn. Thank you for listening. And for those of you celebrating, I hope you have a wonderful holiday.